The scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so uh, I think growing up, we may all have been familiar uh, with the golden phrase, uh, treat others as you yourself would want to be treated. So I kind of wonder if that's actually still relevant today. Uh, I said the golden phrase, the golden rule. Uh, I wonder if that actually is what most people would say, yeah, it's the golden rule. I want to treat others as I myself would want to be treated. So a couple years ago, uh, I was working in Virginia. I was doing an internship at a church there, and I was staying at my uh, best friend's house who I grew up next door to. And he was my roommate, and uh, we were in the basement, and then he had a couple sisters, and they were upstairs. So one day after church, I got home from church, and they wanted to go grab lunch. So I went out to lunch with my roommate and his sister, and we got to talking. We got to talking about life and kind of our dreams and ambitions. And my friend's sister, Melissa, looked at me and said, Justin, I just, I'm really surprised that you want to go into church work. She goes, I grew up in the church. And actually, you know, there's a major part of my own story. And the major part of why I'm here today is because of uh, the ministry of her mother to me when I was a young child. And she said, I just don't understand why you would want to go into church work. When I was a kid, I think I really got a good foundation for uh, some morals. But as I've become an adult, I've come to realize that the Bible, particularly the values and the ethics described in the Bible, are burdensome, old-fashioned, and in fact, if we were to actually follow them, uh, we would be, you know, we would look more like slaves than free and enlightened like we are today. 
How could you justify following the rules that we see in the Bible? Well, I think Melissa actually asked uh, a few good questions there, and I think that we could probably have a, a whole sermon on answering her question really specifically, but that's not exactly where we're going today. You see, as uh, Melissa and I kept talking, I looked at her and I go, Melissa, tell me this. If you were to kind of sum up, you know, what do you think is the most important value or moral or ethic? You know, what rule should we live by today? And she goes, I've thought a lot about this and I think it's simple. Do whatever you want to do that will make you happy that does not intrude on others' happiness. I thought that was interesting. But I think actually what Melissa said there, I think it very much so captures the modern-day golden rule. Do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy and doesn't intrude on anyone else's happiness. The law of God is old. It's burdensome. It leads to enslavement and a lack of freedom. I think that really is, if you were to ask many people today, uh, what do you believe about morals or ethics or values, I think that sentiment really does kind of describe it. And so today, we're going to look at something that is, you know, frankly, uh, very culturally uh, countercultural. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments. And as we look at the Ten Commandments, I hope that we see, you know, this idea that Melissa described, do whatever you want. I don't think that it's just something that people who have no, you know, religious experience, I don't think it's just people that don't go to church. But I think there are even times, as we talked about in our confession of sin, that we want to go about justifying and making excuses for the ways that we ourselves are not comfortable and do not want to follow God's law. And I hope that we learn this. I hope that as we look at the Ten Commandments as a big kind of overview, uh, broad stroke as we're looking at it, I hope that we will learn and see God's law. It's actually a law of freedom and love. God's law is actually a law of freedom and love. And so we're going to look at two points as we kind of broad stroke our way through the Ten Commandments. We're going to see this. Sin shows us slavery. Sin shows us slavery, and God's law shows us freedom. Sin shows us slavery, and God's law shows us freedom. So we're going to look at these two points. All right, so uh, I would love to go through every single one of the Ten Commandments with us this evening and talk about practical applications and how they can get gray and murky at times and black and white at others. But that would take a long time. In fact, it would take uh, 10 weeks of an hour and a half lecture on Thursday evenings. So um, if you actually want to be able to do that, come on Thursday evenings. We're going through practical applications and life discussions and theological discussions over the Ten Commandments where we can really get into the nitty-gritty. We're not going to get into super nitty-gritty today, but again, keep it somewhat high level first thing that I want us to see when we're looking at the Ten Commandments or God's law overall is our sin shows us that we uh, are enslaved to it. Let me explain. So last week we talked about, uh, that is on our Thursday night classes, last week we talked about how the first and Ten Commandments show us essentially that all sin begins in the heart. And as we looked at the first commandment, 
what we kind of learned and what we kind of realized is that if you get that one right, you shall have no other gods before me, in many ways that all the rest of them, the other nine, fall into place. And so, because we struggle with breaking the Ten Commandments, because we struggle with violating the Ten Commandments, uh, it's fair to say that if, you know, one plus one equals two, or if we follow the first commandment, we'll obey God. If we disobey the first commandment, we'll disobey all the other ones, that we struggle with having no other gods than the Lord Himself. And it's not just, I think, anecdotally, and we could talk about stories in our own lives, but I think Scripture illustrates uh, the struggle that the people of God have better than any story that I can share. So I want to look at two different places where we very, very practically and very uh, literally see that the people of God struggle with this idea, you shall have no other gods before me. The first place is going to be in Exodus chapter 32. So remember, really quick catching us up, God heard his people's cry. He rescued them from the Egyptians. He redeemed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He led them. He fed them. He sheltered them. He invites them into a relationship with them. And here in Exodus chapter 20, he says, hey, here's what a relationship with me looks like. And he gives the Ten Commandments. As the people are then waiting for further instruction, you know, not, you know, here's how we obey, here's how we follow, here's how we live. Moses is going up and down the mountain. Well, at this point in the story, that is in Exodus 32, and I'm not going to give all of it away because we're going to have a whole sermon on this, but the people have been waiting a little bit for Moses, and they get impatient. As best as I can tell, impatience is the trigger that leads, that leads the people of God in one of the most, you know, horrendous almost comical because it's so bad ways to violate the first commandment. They get impatient waiting for Moses to come back down and give further instruction. The same people who witness the power and demonstration of God in ways that you and I will not see until glory, these people see these things and then they get impatient. And we arrive here in Exodus 32 verses 1 through 4. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's actually a pretty incredible story. They were witness. They saw the, they saw the ten plagues. They were witness. They saw how God literally provided food for them. Uh, again, when I said shelter, he, he was a flame by night, how he was a cloud by day. They saw the mountain, what the closest thing we could even capture visually uh, looked like a volcano. Thus was the power of the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai. And mind you, he's still there. He's still talking to Moses. But they haven't heard from Moses for a while. And so they, in some ways, put the Lord to the test. In some ways, they decide we're going to go our own ways. We're going to violate 
the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. They make their own gods. They make this calf. And then if we know the rest of the story, I think one of the things that we learn and we see is our actions, they absolutely can affect God. You see, ultimately what the Israelites are guilty here and what we are guilty of ourselves, every time we violate the first commandment, I would describe it like this. I would call it idolatry. But then when we look at the heart of God and the way that he talks about idolatry and the way that it actually makes him feel when we go after other gods, when we worship other gods, well, the metaphor that God uses again and again in Scripture is to him it feels like adultery. To him it feels the same way that it would feel if you're in a loving relationship with your spouse and your spouse betrays you and goes to someone else. That's how God says it feels to him when we worship other gods. He's angry. He's hurt. He talks about threatening to destroy the people and starting all over again. But Moses intercedes and pleads on behalf of the people and God forgives them. And God says, let's do this again. Let's renew our vows to each other. Know that I take this very seriously. It's very important to me. Let's be uh, there for one another. Let's re-enter into this relationship again. Exodus 32, it's actually a very low point in the story of Scripture. I don't know about you. I don't know if there's ever been a time in your life where uh, perhaps you have gotten in trouble. You've done something that you know that you shouldn't, and uh, there's some real consequences for it. There's some real fallout for it. You feel the shame. You realize that your actions have hurt and affected other people. And in your heart, you say, this will never happen again. I don't ever want to feel this way again. I don't ever want to do this bad thing again and cause the hurt and the pain and the trauma that just happened because of this event. I don't want it to ever happen again. There's this proverb in Scripture that I believe it in some ways perfectly captures the struggle that I believe the people of God have with sin. Uh, As a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool return to his folly. You see, this was probably one of the lowest points in the story of Scripture at this time. Maybe second or third lowest point. But here, if Genesis 3 wasn't the lowest point, I believe this next one is. You see, the people of God return and they do the exact same thing. They know better. They know the consequences. They know how it affects God. They know how it affects each other. But we are so drawn to sin. 1 Kings Chapter 12, verses 27 through 33. Jeroboam, the king of people in the northern kingdoms, talking. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who are not of the Levites. 
And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves that he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings." So really quick, essentially what Jeroboam, the king over the people of Israel in the northern kingdom at this time, did here, he essentially violated every single thing that he could have possibly violated. It's essentially what he did. Uh, If you go and worship God the way that God wants you to worship him, well, frankly, you're going to recognize that he's God and I'm not, so let's do away with that. You're not going to worship the Lord the way that uh, you're supposed to worship him. You shall not have a graven image of me. Look at these two golden calves who brought you up out of Egypt, O Israel. Only the Levites and the sons of Aaron are allowed to be priests and the helpers of the priests. Anybody who wants to be a priest, anybody who I said can be a priest, common. Yeah, go ahead. Let's go ahead and do this. You can only make sacrifices at the temple. Nah, you can make sacrifices wherever you want. I'll set up these high places uh, that have not been ordained by God. There's feasts to remember how God was gracious and worked and freed us from our slavery. We'll have feasts when I say we want to have feasts and party on our own terms. We could keep going, right? But in many ways, remember how we started talking about the golden rule? I think Jeroboam kind of uh, encapsulates our modern-day golden rule. Do whatever you want, however you want, as long as it makes you happy and doesn't intrude on anybody else's happiness. We could see how this mindset, we can see how these actions, they genuinely affect the heart of God. It was devastating. It was awful. It was tragic in Exodus 32. It's abhorrent in 1 Kings chapter 12. And don't we do this in our own ways? Aren't there things in our heart and things in our lives and thoughts that go through our mind that we say never again, I don't ever want to do this again, yet we keep going back to it? It's almost as if we have a really big problem, and that's exactly what Scripture says, that uh, we have a really, really big problem, and our problem that we have is sin. Sin is addicting. Sin is all-encompassing. That's the thing. Uh, It goes so far to say, Scripture says, that sin, because it is so uh, changing and and life-altering, that even the things we want and even the things that we desire, that we believe are good, even our desires are turned. Even our desires are heading south, if you will. Our desires are not even correct. We have a problem we are enslaved to sin. And if you don't believe me, all I have to do is say this, stop sinning. And then about 10 seconds later, I know that I've already proven the point because in your mind and in your heart, you're saying, you know, well, screw you, maybe in a little bit more comfortable language, and I've sinned, 
and have shown that, you know, again, we can't help it, right? Just stop sinning. Just don't do it. Uh, I don't think that's actually an application that is helpful to your heart or to my heart or for those of us that, like the people of God in the Old Testament, do have this tendency and do have this struggle to keep going back to our old ways. And again, it's because Scripture describes this. It says that we indeed are enslaved to sin. And so for the first thing that we need to know, if we're ever going to recognize God's law as a law of freedom, if we're ever going to see it as a law of love, if we're ever going to see it for what it truly is, and as Abby mentioned, join with the psalmist in uttering these words, oh God, how I love your law, well, we have to realize that we have a problem. Until we can admit that, until we are desperate for a solution for that, until we can go to God and say, I am the, at the end of my rope, I cannot fix this on my own, this problem with sin that I have in my heart and my actions and my words and my deeds, well, we are never going to be able to know God's law as a law of freedom. We must first recognize that we indeed are enslaved to sin. But when we realize that, when we know that we are enslaved to sin, when we know we are desperate, when we know we are at the end of our rope, well, I believe that actually shows we are actually exactly where God would want us to be. And so we look at our second point. God's law shows us what freedom really looks like. God's law shows us what freedom really looks like. Let me explain. Uh, I think accompanied with my conversation with my friend Melissa, accompanied with, you know, the belief, the idea that, well, as long as you do stuff that makes you happy, that's all that really matters. I, I think another um, way to describe that, another way that I've heard it talked about today, is essentially, uh, as long as you are true to yourself, if you are being the truest version of yourself, that is what's best for everybody, that's what's best for you. And if you were here on Thursday night, you already know where I'm, where I'm heading with this. But I want you to see that if you want to be the truest and most honest version of yourself, how can you possibly do that? It's not just on, you know, meditation, and it's not just through yoga or whatever the latest self-help trend. How can you be the truest version of yourself? Obey the Ten Commandments. What do I mean by that? In Genesis 1, we are told that we are made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, God gives His people a mission, be fruitful and multiply, and wherever you are present, continue to image me, continue to show the world who I am, my character, my values, my love. You see, the law of God is given by God Himself. He is the lawmaker. Therefore, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws, what do they ultimately do? Ultimately, they show us the heart of God. Don't you see the same God who says, I love you, even in the midst of your sin, the same God that cares for justice and compassion and mercy, he's also the same God that says, don't murder. He's also the same God that says, don't commit adultery. Stand up for truth. We could keep going along, but the parts of God's law that we love are given by the same parts of God's law, frankly, that maybe we struggle with today. And we are made in His image. 
So if his law truly reflects his character and his heart, and if we are truly made in his image, then the most true thing that we could ever do this side of heaven is obey the Ten Commandments, is follow them. And before we bring up this idea, you know, but we are enslaved to sin, you know, here is the good news, here is the message that Scripture ultimately arrives on. We've already said it in our liturgy, but Jesus gives us the power to be who we were truly meant to be. Jesus gives us the power to obey the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 5, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. That is, you know, the law of Moses is a bad thing. You don't need to worry about it anymore. No, that's not what he says at all. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then in Romans chapter 6, I feel like, frankly, we could read the whole chapter, but for time's sake, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But I do want to read uh, part of it, part of it for us. Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23, it says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, if we read the rest of that chapter, we would see Paul's talking about that, hey, there was a time where you literally were incapable. God's law you could want to do it, but you are not going to be able to do it. Uh, you could see it and recognize that there were merits of following it, but you'd become aware you could not possibly be obedient to it. But all of Romans chapter 6 and then Romans chapter 8, it talks about, but, but that's not our story anymore. Because of the work of Jesus who fulfilled the law, because of the work of the Spirit who imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus and gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, we now actually have the ability not to be slaves to sin, but to be slaves to righteousness, as Paul says here in Romans chapter 6. You see, not only do we see that God's law is good, but God's Spirit gives us the power to obey and to follow God's law. Amy and I are trying to, frankly, raise Charlie as a Christian. And so one of the ways that we're doing that is where uh, we have this little children's catechism, and we go through it with her. And we're on about question five right now. And even just uh, this afternoon as we were driving to church, uh, Charlie loves to come up to us, completely non sequitur, nothing led to it, and start reciting the catechism. Uh, to us, you know, so mommy, daddy, yeah, Charlie, uh, God made everything for his glory. And then we get excited and we clap. And uh, lately, we've been following up with the next uh, question. I believe it's question four or five, but it's how do we glorify God? And the answer is by loving and obeying him. And so we asked her today in the car ride, and how do we glorify God, Charlie? And she answers by loving and obeying him. And uh, 
I wish you could have seen Amy and I blow up with just joy and, and delight that she did it. This was the first time, so we clapped and we praised her, and it was just a really sweet moment as we were driving the first time. The next four times started getting a little old. But I say all that to say, why did my daughter keep repeating that? Why did she keep getting over it? Well, she actually, uh, she was delighting in our affection. She was delighting in our praise. She was delighting uh, in essentially how it made her feel for us to be so excited and so proud and so happy of her. Here's the truth of the gospel, that even in your worst moments, even in the times where you realize that you keep returning to the vomit, just like dogs do, that you keep struggling with things that you wish you didn't, because of the work of Jesus, God still delights in you even in those moments. His love does not go away from you. His affection is not withdrawn from you. You are perfectly and forever loved by Jesus Christ. But as Paul says, Look at the actions of the things that we do that we wish that we don't. Look at what they lead to. They lead to feelings of shame. They lead to these um, moments of, of guilt, and I get guilt and shame, and we can talk more about that. But look at the fruit that is bared with when we do the things that we wish that we wouldn't do. And look at the fruit that is bared when we obey the Lord, when we follow the Lord. Look at the difference of how we feel in our own hearts. Again, God's going to delight in you either way, but how much more so are we aware of His affection? How much more so are we aware of His love and His delight than when we are following Him? You see, again, not only does God's law, because Jesus perfectly obeyed it, set us free, uh, and again, God's law is a law of freedom, but it's also a law of love. And I think when we realize that, I think we truly can say, yeah, be your truest and dearest self. Look at how it affects the world. I'm going to give three examples to kind of wrap some of this up. And so, yeah, we're going to get into some of the ethics here of the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, hey, uh, let me show you what the re that really means. Let me show you the heart of it. If you've even had incredible angry thoughts at somebody else, to God it's as if you have murdered them. You have violated the sixth commandment. What happens? Uh, what happens when we try to apply this love and affection that we know God has for us through Jesus Christ? at the times when we are tempted, at the times when we want to violate the sixth commandment. What happens if we remember, well, we don't want to be angry at this person because of the wrong that we have done. But what happens if we remember that God at one time was angry with us, but Jesus paid the penalty for the wrong that we have done, which is far worse than the wrong anybody else has ever done to us. And because we have been loved by God and forgiven by God, perhaps we can actually turn the other cheek or not lash out at others. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Uh, again, we talked about this in class two weeks ago, 
but I think if as a culture and as a society and as Christians, and, you know, we could talk about, you know, stealing a candy bar as a kid from the grocery store, but I think one of the ways that we see this idea of, of thievery, you know, and stealing um, incredibly prominent today is that those payday loan stores, it's despicable, right? But you, there are real people, and to my knowledge, the most of the people that actually take advantage of this are those in already low socioeconomic uh, situations in life. They go to a payday loan store where they're charged 300% interest on something that just isn't worth it. If we truly followed the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, something like this wouldn't exist. And I think the lower socioeconomic neighborhoods that we're told don't go into because they're dangerous, maybe they wouldn't be as dangerous walking down the street if we actually cared about the Eighth Commandment. As an aside, and actually I'm going to kind of go here for just a second, I know that we care about the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. I know Christians really care about this, and one of the ways they demonstrate they care about this is by protesting and boycotting uh, Planned Parenthood or other such places. But I've never seen Christians boycott or protest payday loan places. Something worth asking, I think. The Ninth Commandment, you shall not lie. I think oftentimes we lie to get ahead. We lie to make ourselves look better in the eyes of others. But if the love of God defines us, and if the love of God, if it actually means everything to us, well, then maybe Jesus' words of affection could mean more to us than others, and we wouldn't have to lie to get ahead. Or if we've actually done something wrong, we don't need to worry about our self-image or how we look to others, and we could actually own up to the fact that we've done something wrong, and we could repent. Or finally, even, we can tell the truth. We can tell the truth and speak the truth even when it is inconvenient or it's hard because we know that no matter what the consequences of speaking the truth are, ultimately it doesn't compare to the pleasure of God's affection, the pleasure of God's approval when we follow Him. The Ten Commandments in many ways, I think they can seem old, and they can seem outdated. We briefly just looked through three of them, but I think the reality, if we were to really dive into it and, and really see how the Ten Commandments flow into all of life, I think that we would see we were actually made to follow the Ten Commandments. And our homes, our relationships, our world, our workplace, every sphere of life that we are involved in, it actually would be better if we obeyed and followed the Ten Commandments. Why? Because we would be living out the character of God in this world. While His law may sound old-fashioned, while it may seem irrelevant, culturally out of date, our world actually desperately needs us to follow and obey the Ten Commandments. And because of the work of Jesus, we actually can. Let's pray. Lord, in some ways, I think uh, the world that we live in today, we live and we do life in such a way as if you have not spoke, 
as if perhaps maybe you created everything and then set us over to our own devices and said, good luck. But God, you haven't done this. God, you have spoken to us. You have shown us who you are, your heart and your nature and your actions. And no greater place is this demonstrated than in the work of Jesus Christ. God, we also thank you for your law. We thank you that it shows how you want us to relate to you. We thank you that it shows us how you want us to relate to one another. And God, not only do you show us, but you equip us and empower us that we may do that.